had to be you. Is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. Hello, romantics. Welcome to It's Hard to Be You, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mather, and we are in the midst of the Bad Romance miniseries where we're talking about unconventional relationships, toxic relationships, all that good stuff, and really getting into the weeds of some genre movies that center around relationships but uh, aren't normally classified as romance. Um, this episode, we're talking about the horror film classic Rosemary's Baby, starring Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes. Now, before we begin, just want to offer a disclaimer. You know, yes, this is a movie directed by Ron Polanski, who is an alleged sex criminal uh, um, and uh, fugitive from justice and all-around horrible person. Um I know some people, you know, stay away from his movies and that's totally a valid choice, but I don't, I tend to be a little more lenient when it comes to, uh, movies he made before his, uh, crimes, which took place in 1977. Rosemary's Baby came out in 1968. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sure people who saw the podcast description. <laughs> Uh, or decide not to listen to this if they were against that and i respect that choice um but you know it's uh it's an important movie and i think an important relationship movie important movie about marriage um and i have a really exciting guest uh for this episode um someone that i really respect and admire um diego crespo hello welcome Hi, that was a delightful intro after an important intro. So I, I am I'm very honored to be here. I respect you greatly as well. And, uh, you know, I still listen to the podcast even um, when I'm when I'm not on it. And uh, I, uh, I'm i really happy to be here, too, even if it's a, it's a complicated movie to talk about. Yes. Which is, um, you know, yes. I, I think that's why people tune into discussions like this, though. Exactly. And, um, you know, for those of you who are not familiar with Diego, he's a writer, podcaster, photographer, all around great guy, great follow on Twitter um, and other platforms. So I'm really happy to have you. And um, yeah, I I just want to, you know, hear kind of your initial impressions of Rosemary's Baby from the first time uh, you saw the film, kind of when was that and how has your uh thoughts on the film you know changed since then well uh let me also start off by saying if you hear lots of rain and animal noises and cars it's because it is like raining and gloomy and terrible in los angeles right now so i just want to apologize to everyone for that but my relationship to rosemary's baby is it's i think like the, the one of the first movies i saw in like the very first film class i ever took like i think it was like our halloween special um, I cannot remember my professor's name, but she she was fantastic, and she was really encouraging uh, people to go back and look at all areas of cinema. Um, and this was uh, definitely one that stuck with me. We'd watch the films in the class, right? And mm-hmm. uh, this was maybe the last film that like really scared me. You know, before I like understood like how movies operated, and like now I don't I 
I get scared by films, but I, I hope I'm being clear when I say like, like there's still plenty of scary movies being made, but this is one that felt like, how did they do that? You know what I mean? Right, like right. It, it wasn't a clear cut for me. And um, I, I think it's like, unfortunately it's, it's really wonderfully directed. Um, and it's, it's also like really depressing. And uh, it definitely left me like shaken up. I didn't own a car when I first saw this movie. So I was like taking the bus to work or to school. And um, so I, I kind of just sat with it. It was like the last class of the day too. So in the fall in Los Angeles, you know, those cold winter nights, I'm on the bus alone, just kind of yeah. sitting with my thoughts yeah. on this movie. Uh, and it, it changed my view of horror movies. I think it was one of the big ones that really like, shook up what they could be you know because like i love me sam raimi's and stuff like that like he's he's you know top four diego directors probably um but evil dead 2 is not the same tone as rosemary's baby <laughs> uh and so it, it really helped broaden my own horizons cinematically anyways yeah yeah i mean i i, I know i saw this movie for the first time also in college i i feel like i watched it um I, I I don't really quite remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure that I had bought the like Criterion Blu-ray, just like having known about this movie, or maybe I watched the movie on TV. I don't quite remember because like I remember this was kind of around the time when I really got into the Criterion collection and I really got into horror movies as well. Because I was not the type to watch scary movies when I was in high school or younger. <laughs> like it took me a while to get into them, and even now, like I mean, I, I do enjoy horror movies, but. Uh, um it's still not really a genre that i like would associate with me but um yeah it's one of the things i watched like over and over because i found it to be similar to you very scared very unsettling um and i think having now become more knowledgeable about horror movies i really i, I think i understand better why this movie is so unsettling like how so much of it takes place during the day and how like so much of it is like people being like very like nice to you <laughs> you know, in a way that's, like, really unsettling. Um, and um, also, like, how few actual, like, jump scares there are in this movie. Like, this movie is is such a, like, slow build of, like, dread and paranoia that it really becomes unbearable towards the end. Um, and, um, yeah, and it really didn't quite hit me just how you know, how terrible this marriage was until, like, in the last couple of years, you know, because, you know, when I was, like, 20 years old, like, I was like, okay, whatever, like, you know, he, he I, I don't know, it just didn't click the way that it clicks now, having been through relationships, not quite as bad as this one, but ones that are equally as isolating. So um, it's quite uh, it's quite a journey, and I agree with you. I think you know the direction of the movie is really quite striking, and part of the reason why it really works. Um, as much as I hate to say it, but um, yeah, I just really um, and when I watched it, you know, uh, this time around, it's it really um, it really hit me just like how much the beginning really sets up like the rest of the movie um and like how many like how many like shots there are that really kind of telegraph what's happening you know when rosemary's not you know like when she's not in the room and all, all the stuff that you don't see 
because you know she's not privy to those conversations like it's really quite amazing like how much of that is really um you know like baked into the into the into the filmmaking into the script into like little dialogue little clues and stuff um but yeah so like what um were there any kind of new takeaways you had to this movie this time around when you watched it yeah i i want to really quick also double down on like the the perspectives in this movie of like rosemary like she's unable to like she doesn't know who to trust and stuff like that and that was like the first thing my professor pointed out in our like after movie discussion she was like notice the like you don't get to see a lot of people's faces at the end of hallways a lot of shots are, like at the end of hallways but they're not like telephoto lenses which put you right in, up in front of people, right? They're wide angle lenses. So you get like the distance really measured out. And I was like, mm-hmm. I had never thought about any of that before I, <laughs> yeah, I took that class. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I just fantastic work there. But I think my big takeaway, because I had not seen this movie in a while. Um, I, d- I feel like I don't want to just have us do like an addendum for every point of this movie, um, which is why I, I love that you opened up with the important topic. Um, yeah. But I hadn't revisited it in a while. And I rewatched it twice before this episode um, because it is that good. And I watched it again, literally, as like in the last three hours before recording this episode as well. And these last two viewings really just solidified like what a dirtbag Guy Woodhouse is, the John yeah. Cassavetes character. Um, there's like, because he's like a, a douche before he makes the literal deal with like the devil and stuff like that. Um there's this one moment it's like in the middle of the movie where they're having um that party and rosemary's friends see her for the first time in months and you know they're like you don't look good right she's, she's clearly going through it she's like she's so thin she's so pale and she's so sad and it, it it is just brutal to see that but there's this moment where guys moving around he's like everyone's trying to keep an eye on her because she's pregnant but he's been doing that for a while and there's clearly like an angle here now even if you and the audience don't understand where it's going. And he's just, he's so rude. Like, he just, like, he has no manners, obviously. He's evil, basically. Um, but there's this bit where he's, like, he's interrupting her and her friend catching up. And he's, like, kind of, he's just plowing through the conversation. He's picking up a bunch of stuff. And then he, like, his hands are full. And then he looks over at the friend. And he's like, well, give me a hand, would you? Like, yeah, it's just so, like, a normal human being... You know, everyone needs a hand once in a while. It's like, I'm sorry, could, could you give me a, a hand with this? Like, that's a normal human interaction to have. But his first response is to be like angrily, like, oh, don't you see what I'm doing here? Like, it's just, mm-hmm. oh, it, it, I hate him. I hate him so much. And John Cassavetes plays him perfectly, who was a great filmmaker in his own right. But oh, I mean, like, I, I really hated him this yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of amazing, right? Like, he makes a deal with the devil and, like, literally gets, like, it, I think this time it really hit me that, like, he kind of gets cucked by the devil, like, literally. <laughs> and, like, he just has to, like, sit there and, like, you know, watch this happen. And he's like, I don't know. I, I And all for what? So he could be in some, like, play, you know? But, you know, it's, like, not even, like... He's doing it to like become like a big movie star. Like I think that's the it's like he's doing it like kind of like one like one ring on the ladder lower than what actually would make sense. And I'm like all this for nothing. Like, um, and just like his selfishness and his like I think um, short sightedness and like um, 
like it just seems so like um like yeah like it's totally like when you watch the first section of the movie of like how much he like treats her like a child doesn't really like listen to her is very dismissive and condescending and and i think in some ways kind of cruel to her even in a way that's like even before this whole like deal thing and then it's like well of course this guy would just like um you know like sign his wife away to this like horrible fate and like make her suffer for nine months plus like how you know plus throughout the life of this child or whatever and um it's so um yeah and it's like i just like can't in like a million years never would imagine myself like meeting a satanist and being like sure sounds great like it's just so it's like so bizarre um and uh yeah and it you know john cassavetes you know i went through i think like a major Cassavetes fan or phase, um, I think in the early pandemic, because a lot of his movies were on the Criterion Channel. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, I had, I had seen a woman, a woman under the influence, but I watched like Killing of a Chinese Bookie and um, Gloria and uh, Opening Night and all those uh, husbands. And I'm like, this guy was like the greatest wife guy ever. Oh, yeah. You know, like <laughs> loved his wife. You know, by all accounts, I mean, I don't know what happened in their personal life too much, but like, by all, you know, you know, for for what it's worth, like, pretty much seemed to be like at least enamored and respectful of his wife and her talents, and like, gave her all these amazing parts to play, and um, you know, seemed to be a very collaborative, happy marriage, um, and like he's playing with the scuzziest husband of the 1960s, <laughs> like it's. It's quite a brilliant performance. And he was already directing by this time. I think he started directing in the 50s. And he'd already, I think, or at least in the early 60s. And he had been married to Gina Rollins for over a decade. So I want to say that, like, this is kind of an ironic casting choice because um, it's like, it's like, I can also imagine like Paul Newman playing this role, you know, or like Tom Hanks, you know, where it's like these like guys that are like famous for being like loyal to their wives for decades um you know only they could like you just you couldn't hand this movie to someone that like has a bad reputation because it would just be too i don't know they I, I feel like it would be too like unsettling but knowing that he's such a like genuine or he was such a genuine guy in his personal life i think helps the performance i think so too and like there, there's a couple stories about like positive don't worry yeah but, like um, <laughs> like like I don't know about if you know the the onset story. The I guess it's a rumor, you know. It's like if you know if you hear the legends, like print the legend, um, that like Polanski was talking about how like a man is gonna get bored with like a woman sexually after a certain point, and um, which is just the worst, like one of the worst things you could ever say ever. Yeah. Uh, but and then Cassavetes is like, well, like I'm, I'm paraphrasing everything. He's like, well, I've never been more attracted to my wife. Uh, than I am right now, and like, like it just you know, it's funny that you mentioned the wife guy thing because I had that that quote in my notes, and it's like, it's the most wife guy quote ever. He's like, I'm gonna be attracted to her even <laughs> right. more as our relationship evolves together, and it's like, yeah, that's like, uh, again, like we don't know these people's person or that person's personal life, you know, one of their personal lives, um, but like that's the most wife guy comment ever, and it's it's wonderful. <laughs> Um, and I don't know if you know this, but like Robert Redford and Jack Nicholson, I guess were like briefly up for the part. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's like those are good choices, but no, I, I think it had to be Cassavetes. Like, yeah, I, I because he also, I mean, I guess like Rob Redford also has his quality, but like John Cassavetes looks like a golden boy, you know, like he just mm-hmm. has that look of someone who's like used to getting his way and everyone seems to fawn over him and is like the kind of like he seems like the kind of guy that you know like rosemary would take home to her parents and they would approve like immediately because he you know he dresses well he looks neat he's tall he's you know i think he's like good in a room yeah Um, (laughs) in a way that like i think reads very like sleazy to us now but probably to people back then maybe seemed very like and I mean, like, there's a reason why, I mean, I really want, I want to get into this, but like, there's a reason why Rosemary is so like hesitant to leave him and doesn't, mm-hmm. I don't think she even considers the option. Um, and, uh, and I think part of it is because like, she, I bet on some subconscious level, she's like, well, I married this golden boy and it would be wrong to leave him. Yeah. And you like, you, you see, even like, momentarily you see like brief flashes of charm and it's like okay like you can see it but you see through it now you yeah know? yeah but it's like he'll he'll, he'll he'll get you a chuckle in the movie once in a while yeah yeah um, but you're you're totally right and i think that's also part of the brilliance of the movie is that it's not the just the construct of um the supernatural events that lead us to you know rosemary getting her baby it's it's also like it's it's not like some like every element of society is part of the cult, but every element of society is against Rosemary, right? Right. Which is just like you know a very real thing for women uh, around the world, and it's it's horrifying. And I think that's part of the reason why it like stuck with me too. You know, it's one of the first like uh, examples of art that put me in s- someone else's shoes. That you know, I had like. I, I'm proud to say at least considered at that point, but not felt the way this movie had made me feel. I'm like, oh, shoot, I I, I need to like, I need to be more open, even more open minded than than like I, I was trying to be. I got a I got a lot of growth to do, you know, like it's just it's very rare for art to have an impact that can like help you grow as a person, I guess. You know what I mean? Like we have art that like is engaging and entertaining but here's one uh with a complicated history that even without the supernatural elements you get a very tragic drama about a woman forced to undergo um the idealistic housewife narrative and like we see like her other options in the film when she like catches up with her friends like she could try maybe to like escape with the friends, but they're all like living the same life too. You know, like what other option is there for like a, a woman in this situation? At least that's what she, in my opinion, that's what she feels in this narrative. You know, it's like when you're so confined to this one avenue in life, it's like, that's all, you know, it's like, what are, what are your options there? And you know, that they're, they're very limited. Right. Even I mean- if you can see them. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Rosemary, it's, you know, it's, I think it's very telling that she comes from Nebraska. And, you know, I bet her whole life, you know, she was sort of groomed to become, I don't mean groom in like the criminal sense, but like, 
you know, I, I bet she was like taught that like, hey, you know, you need to get married and have children and follow your husband. And, you know, especially when she says she grew up Catholic. And I mean, even there's still a little like there's some like modernism is seeping through, like she's sort of becoming more agnostic. And I think she does resist Guy a lot more than I think she's given credit for, even though she, I think she resists him more than she gives credit to herself. And, um, and I agree that I, I, I think even if her friends are living more independent, you know, quote unquote, like feminist lives, I bet she thinks that she can't achieve that because of like who she is and how she was raised, you know, and like, it's certainly possible that they're all in their little patriarchal marriages, but I, it almost doesn't matter because I, I don't think she can, you know, like I've met people who are like, oh yeah, that's, that's all, that's great for them, but I can't do that because of such and such of my background or my upbringing or my beliefs. And, you know, and going into like, you know, the, the paranoia part of it. I mean, I agree with you. Like this movie is eye-opening to me. And um, I also had the experience of like, not really understanding like what, it, what it's like for, you know, for, for women and, and, and really understanding the like, hostility that is i mean just the amount of times that she like the simple scene of um when uh when the cast cast of it's given them that dessert that has the the drug to like what you know um knock her out or whatever um she doesn't want to eat it and even like the way guy like dismisses her manipulates her you know guilt trips her and somebody's gaslights her into finishing it and um you know and you know she does the thing where she only eats half and she like throws the west away which is why she's like semi-conscious during you know her nightmare sequence um but even it's such a small thing like guy like don't don't make her eat and just like how much like like what's the big deal if she eats or doesn't eat it they'll never know you know she'll lie um and even like the way that like the tennis route and all that like just the like the the amount of just like everything she says gets, you know, resisted and shot down. Everything she does gets criticized. And, you know, it's, and and what's scary to me is that like this movie is still relevant. (laughs) Like, it's not like this was solved in the last 50 years or so. Um, And I mean, I, you hear stories now about like women not being believed by medical professionals and getting dismissed and their symptoms not being treated properly and you know and all that and i'm like that's happening in this movie even the doctor that she trusts you know dr hill even he is like whether he's a part of the conspiracy or not like you know i've read so many like debates online you know back in the old imdb you know (laughs) boards days like about like whether dr hill is a satanist or not but it almost doesn't matter because like he's still in the conspiracy that is the fact that like he's a man and he respects dr Seperstein. so whatever that doctor says goes and not even listening to what his patient is saying um and you know one thing i love about that that party scene is that her friends are like you need to listen to your body (laughs) like you know best Mm -hmm. And she listens to that and she tries her hardest to, you know, make that happen for herself. Um, So I I think that, like, there is a lot. I think that, like, Rosemary has a lot of spine to her, but it's almost that, like, everything is so oppressive around her that it almost, like, it 
it's just not enough. And that to me is the true horror, the true tragedy of this movie. Yeah, I, I like that you brought up the um, the doctors. Ah, I, I can't remember the name now, but uh, Doctor Hill, Charles Charles Grodin, the great late yeah. Charles Grodin. Um, because I when I first saw, I remember being like, "Oh, everyone's in on it." On these rewatches, I'm like, at first I, I had this. It was it was super funny to hear you say that because I had kind of had the same train of thought. I was like, "Oh, he's not in on it," but it is like the these systems, these patriarchal systems, and and looking down upon women and like, that's still there, but it's also like, it doesn't matter if he's in on it. Like he's a, he's a byproduct of it now. Like that's, uh, that, that's what I think elevates it even further as like, like I'm not, I'm not saying elevated horror or any of that nonsense. I'm just saying like, as a movie that kind of takes us to the next level. It's like, here's the subtext, here's the text and here's all of it together. Take it or leave it. Um, it, it presents it all in a, in a very disturbing little package. Uh, I also, we also, of course, have to shout out Mia Farrow, who is, oh yeah, you know, the Rosemary herself, who is just a powerhouse in this movie, a heartbreaking powerhouse. It's really like one of, I think, the all-time great horror movie performances. You know, I mean, performances in general, but like within this genre, I think she's like the gold standard, like, you know, she and like Dana Kaluuya are like my two favorites. Um, That's a pretty good pairing. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I, you know, what I love about her performance is that like, she's so frail, you know, like one thing I love is a horror movie about a frail woman kind of knocking around a big building, trying to get out alive. You know, I love, like gothic horror i love scary houses you know if there's a candelabra i'm in um but i mean this movie does not have a candelabra which is the one point against it but um <laughs> you know there is a part where she's like going through secret passageways and i'm like this is this is what i want i want her moving furniture finding doors and stuff um but i love that because it's just like you know, like like we said, like I, this movie really puts you into her shoes in such a visceral way, where you feel that paranoia and you feel that like tension and that dread and that like, you know, the just scrambling to like figure out the clues and understand and like, you know, I think just the and the movie, I think the filmmaking really supports that perspective and it really does not let you get anyone else's perspective at all, and I think it's for the better because it just allows you to like live in this space of like complete and utter confusion and fear. Yeah. Like I guess there was a TV show adaptation with uh, Zoe Saldana or like a TV movie, whatever. Yeah. And like, I haven't seen it. I I don't know if it's good or bad. Um, I'm willing to bet it's not quite as strong as this movie. I just have a hunch um, for no reason in particular, but there's a, like to my mind, that is sort of the negative byproduct of the current state of media and art is that it's like, Oh, let's revisit the pro- the popular stuff. That's like, it, this is, this is kind of a, a masterpiece. I think that's safe to say, or at least it's in the conversation of masterpieces, if not a definitive one. Um, and I could just imagine having not seen that television version, like much more of the heightened mystery stuff and like the adrenaline rush of that and i think when the film employs that after the moment you mentioned with um her girlfriends 
right? Like that's when the movie starts shifting gears and she becomes more proactive and mm-hmm. we realize the tragedy of it not really mattering because she doesn't have the full picture uh, until the very end, which is just, oh, it's just brutal um, on rewatch. But like I could see that and them trying to make her more proactive from the get go. And I think that's, there's a story there too. I think because this is such a tragic story that I, I think you, you would need to make it not Rosemary's baby. You'd have, you'd have to do something else, yeah. you know, um, which is completely valid, you know, but that's, that this is, this ultimately has to be a tragedy for, for this narrative to fulfill its mission statement at the start. Uh, uh, one other thing I really noticed this time, and this is definitely because I've, I've only caught up with like Mario Bava uh, and like all the Giallo stuff in the last couple of years. Um, I could imagine if, if Letterbox was around in the 1960s, if someone caught Rosemary's Baby after a decade of like Mario Bava uh, and, and like Dario Gento, like getting their starts in cinema, they'd be like, well, this is just a this is the prestige horror version of like Black Sunday or something like that. And I just that I don't know, maybe I just have brainworms, but I found that like hypothetical thought very funny. Yeah. Someone like you, you get what I'm saying, right? Like people uh-huh. sometimes see like a, a movie get more serious with like the genre material and they're like, Well, this is just a boring version of whatever other right, thing right. I just saw. And I don't know. I just made up a hypothetical take to that. So I'm clearly online way too much. But I know, definitely. Hey, we're all guilty of it. Yeah, it um, I love to make up people to get mad at. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, I. Yeah, I mean this. I I think what's really interesting about like I haven't seen the the miniseries either, and I was really interested in it just because I really like Zoe Saldana, you know, as an actress. You know, having just seen you know, Avatar and Avatar 2, and I'm like, wow, this woman, oh, like, yeah. invented motion capture acting. Um, like, <laughs> I, was really, I was interested in seeing it, but um, I I felt like the reviews were kind of mixed. I don't think they really changed from what I remember reading about it, just, like, I, I was just out of curiosity when I was kind of going through the Wikipedia page for the original film. I don't think they really changed too much, and I, I'm not sure that, like, I I can I'm not sure how much they made Rosemary more proactive and less. I I agree with you that I think it's probably likely that like they don't make her as much of the you know kind of scared little mouse that she is in the in this movie. Just because I feel like that's not really tasteful these days. But I agree with you that I think something would get lost if that were the case because um, I think part of what makes this film so powerful is Rosemary becoming more and more proactive and how she like just like the really sad realization that like her husband cares so little for her i mean to me that's really sad because i think she's genuinely in love with guy and i she roots for his career and kind of like the way that she really like touts his like minimal credits you know (laughs) no one loves an albatross or whatever like (laughs) that's a real play apparently um but um and uh like she's like oh like just like the way that she's like is constantly trumpeting his you know minimal success um and just like i mean just like it's again like just like imagine like you just realize her husband like sold your soul away you know like it's just like it's sad and um i think that like 
you know, as she becomes more, I think, protective of herself and her baby and, and as she's like gets older and or as like the film goes on and um you know, and and I, I think the um you know, I think what really interests me about the ending is, you know, she isn't able to kill the baby and she has this like maternal instinct, but you don't really see her like accepting, you know, this, she's not really joining the cult. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be interesting. Like she's, again, she has that resistance in her that like, she's like, look, I can't kill my baby, but I'm also not becoming one of you. And I'm not accepting like your title that you're giving me. Um, And, uh, you know, and like, even when she's like, you know, trapped with everyone and, you know, the great Laura Louise is, you know, you know, getting her her mother's milk and giving her pills, like she's still very much like resisting that, and um, you know, like she doesn't accept the pills. She's very, she, you know, she's very, she's suspicious of them, and she's, and she's onto them. And I think she doesn't really accept their gaslighting as much as she she would have earlier in the film. And I think it's because she feels this like responsibility to herself and her child. Yeah, the uh, the ending is. I think people like are are just immediately willing to subscribe that she does join the cult. I think that's like, I'm, I'm really happy you brought this up too because I kind of got the feeling like I'm not. I'm definitely not saying sequel or whatever, but I like in a hypothetical. I think the story isn't over. I think this this narrative or this part of whatever this world is like it is over right like i don't want to see rosemary's baby too or whatever her raising the baby but i think like this this story was like let's say this this story had to exist because we needed to see um the story about a woman like kind of being forced into a motherhood like being lied about her own ability to be a mother um and the only way she could be a mother is like by raising the son of Satan, which is like, you know, you're, you're laughed out of a room if you pitch that in a right, studio right. today. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't think she like becomes part of the cult either or anything like that. I, I think she, she submits to raising the child because she, it's her child and she is going to love it. I'm not saying that there's like a definitive answer that you could reach if you told more of this story. I just find it fascinating that it's an ending that's like anything else can happen after this point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a great um, ellipsis ending, I think. And one that, I mean, there is a sequel novel called Fun oh, of Rosemary. I never knew that. Yeah. It came out in 1997, like I guess about 30 years after the original um, same author, Ira Levin, Son of Rosemary, um, and I think there's also a TV movie sequel called Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby. I have not read or watched any of that stuff, um, but it uh, doesn't really seem to be anything that's that successful. And I think it's because, like, as you're kind of saying, like, there's really no way to, like, continue this story that's satisfying. Like, I don't want to see Rosemary's son at, like, 30 trying, like, I, I don't know. I just wouldn't. I liked how it ends on this like question mark of like what happens, you know, because like 
is this cult even real? You know, <laughs> like um, I remember, I, I think I remember reading somewhere that there's like an interpretation of this book that, uh, or the story that like all the ending is sort of a nightmare or like another hallucination and that like it was all in Rosemary's mind and that like, you know, all her paranoia was really about nothing. Um, and that like she had just had nightmares based on, you know, she had nightmares about the devil. She had nightmares about the the ending with the cult. And, you know, I'm never really a fan of it's all a dream endings because I'm like, they're kind of like, I don't know, they find them a little cheap. But mm-hmm. it's interesting to think about, like, um, because like there's so much like confirmation bias in her little investigation, you know, like, um, like her, the, like the Scrabble, the anagrams and all that. Like, I definitely, you know, it's damning evidence, but it also feels like, well, you know, are we sure it's not just um, uh, confirmation bias? Or like, she's like seeing things that she wants to see because she already suspects it. And or it's like been planted in her head by, you know, Hutch or whatever. Um, so, but I, I, so I think it's, it's interesting, uh, but I definitely don't, I feel like it's, you know, I don't, that's the way to interpret the novel or the, the story or the film, but I'm not saying I buy it, but it's just what I, what I had heard or what I had read. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to discuss like interpretation and stuff like that. Maybe not all of them. Something I, I, like that was, that was fascinating because I wasn't really like aware of those, um, that one in particular, but you know, sometimes you hear people talk about stuff and. Like uh, like for with Nope, for example, with the shoe standing up and people are like, oh, these aliens were there the whole time. And it's like, no, that's not what that's about right, at all. Right, <laughs> um, right, which right. is like, okay, it's, it's you're discovering yeah. greater interpretations. It's great, but I let's let's uh, keep our eye on the ball a little bit. Yeah, that's yeah, all. Exactly. <laughs> you know? um, are there any like scenes or or moments in the film that really like stand out to you, like as something that's like really scary or really kind of hits home on the the themes for you uh there's that moment around christmas where rosemary's walking around like uh, rockefeller plaza i believe it's mm-hmm. called um yeah i've only been to new york twice so i don't i, I don't know all the names sorry everyone uh new york's gonna like attack me <laughs> um <laughs> but she's walking around there and even on rewatch because like it's easier said than done when a movie goes out of its way to try to like express something through visual uh through the camera through the blocking whatever right like some it's very rare for a movie to kind of carry that all the way through it's difficult there's a lot of money and time involved with that totally get it but even in that scene rosemary's out in public and she's so distant from everyone either Mm -hmm. through like where she's walking around or where she's um how, how the camera positions her uh she is not part of the outside world at that point and that really drives home that like whatever she's going through be it all in her head or in um like actually like a a curse of some kind uh she is not part of the world at this point she is she's being carved out of it um to the point where like her cheekbones have never been sharper and it's just sad to see uh i'm i'm glad mia farrow is (laughs) is able to recover from this movie because she just looks like she just like went through it for the filming of this. I, I don't know about the, the intensity of the shoot and I'm sure it's like a lot of makeup and stuff like that, but like it, it just, it's so depressing 
to see her in parts of this film, you know, like uh, that that part really stuck out to me though. The the Rockefeller scene. Yeah, this, yeah. Course, I think like back. it's so isolating. Um this movie and I think her life is very isolating. Um I think partially because I think that's just what happens when you're kind of in this like gaslighting type marriage. Um, but also, like, you know, I've been to the building w- that this either it's it was filmed there or this building was like based on this on this real life building. It's where uh, John Lennon was apparently shot, you know, um, and it's like in this neighborhood that's like, I mean, it's a nice neighborhood. Of course, now it's been like more gentrified than it probably was in the 60s. But like. It's just like one of these like old New York buildings that just feels like it's out of time. And like it's easy to fall in love with that feeling, but it's also like it just feels so like you don't exist in the real world, you know? And like <laughs> it's almost shocking to like see her like friends and like you hadn't listened to like modern music in this in this building. It just feels like so like ensconced in like this old time period. And like it's interesting that like, you know, the two people who were able to like escape the building only did so because like they died, you know, yeah. you know, Terry and the uh, Gardenia, Mrs. Gardenia. And it's like, um, no one like moves out of these old buildings. I mean, like there's so many of these, like, I don't know if you ever watched like only murders in the building, but like, in <laughs> yes, that, I have. you know, like it's like that kind of building where people live there for like 30 years and for like generations. And like, I lived in like a, a I lived in a building like this in Queens that was like not as nice as these buildings but like definitely like my neighbors like were paying like a 12th of the rent i was paying Mm -hmm. and because they had been there for like 40 years and like they had raised kids there and like you know it's rent controlled and stuff and it's just like it's just jarring because it's like no one really moves out and you just kind of like are there like it's your home and like um and so it's like so um it's like I think like these like old New York buildings can feel very isolating because you know your neighbors like there's so much interaction there like you don't you almost don't need to like make friends because like all your friends like live in the building and you just have these little like little societies and it's very it can be freaky in like a building like the one where where they live um especially one that's like kind of old and like you know the apartments are weird because like they've all been kind of remodeled you know um and um it's just very like i would never want to live in a building like this you know neither neither would i i want to live in a building that's like modernized where people are like moving in and out just because like it forces you to like be a little bit more independent from the building but um but yeah so i uh i definitely agree with the isolation period i think my favorite scene in the film is the phone booth scene you know with the music and performance and just like the guy that's sitting out there and you're like you don't know like who that is like it could be a spy from the cult it could just be a guy that's waiting um and the music i think there's like this like weird like theremin version of like the like the lullaby theme and like i don't know it's so or maybe that comes later when she's like walking either like walking back or, like maybe, maybe she's like walking there's like this lullaby like the main lullaby but it's like theremin like techno it's it's very scary um 
and the, the music is really unsettling and um you know of course Mia Farrow like performed that scene live in the street and Roman Polanski was like just walk in the street they're not gonna hit a pregnant woman and I'm like great but um I mean it feels very authentic yes. and very cool um you mentioned the filming of this movie like I know that um Frank Sinatra divorced Mia Farrow in the middle of filming and like I think that happened like like in the middle and I don't think it was a very amicable happy divorce I feel like it was I don't think it was a happy marriage either um I mean which is not surprising considering they're probably like what 40 years apart or whatever yeah Um, there there was a gap there I don't think Frank Sinatra was like he's no John Cassavetes that's for sure no it it doesn't sound like it (laughs) Um, but I do know that like Tony Curtis plays the actor who was blinded. Um, and so I feel like that was done because like he was a friend of Mia Farrow's and was like, I don't know, it's just like a favor to her to like make her feel better. And like I love that guy's performance. I love that that character because like he's so sarcastic and bitter about his blinding. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> it doesn't matter what tie I wear, does it? And I'm like, I don't know, it's just it's just random. Like I, I do think this movie is quite funny. In a, like, very, it's a very black comedy. But I do think there are a lot of really funny moments. Like, especially, I mean, I want to talk about the cast of Eds too, because like, they are a marriage in this movie. Um, and mm-hmm. I think they have a very complicated marriage as well. Um, but um, yeah, I just want the, the, the other actor guy, because it's very funny. And I think this movie is very funny in a very odd way. <laughs> No, um, I, I can understand yeah. that. Uh, I, I It's sort of similar to how when I first saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. You know, yeah. that movie feels like it's made by the by the murdering family in the film. And it's like, I, I just so disturbed. And then you hear Toby Hooper, like in interviews uh, before his passing, rest in peace. And he was like, well, I thought I was making a black comedy. And I was like, <laughs> right. I guess. I don't know. But I think the same thing with Rosemary's Baby, frankly. I think you're right. I think it is subtly very funny you know like the the phone call is very funny where he's just, he that dude is like he's not gonna like commit suicide or anything but he is like that that dude's not having a happy rest of his life he is like gonna take out that disappointment on everyone in his immediate life forever <laughs> you know um and i think it's a little funny when it's revealed that the elderly are all evil like yeah. it's just a funny image. And then to hear a bunch of 60, 70, 80 year old people shout hail Satan. It's a funny image. It's not like unintentional. It's, I don't even think it's like campy. It's just like, it, it, it's ridiculous. Like your brain can't really separate that fact from the utter horror of it. You know, <laughs> like yeah, it's, it's, I mean... it's a funny image. <laughs> Like I like when I was talking earlier about how like this movie's unsettling because like everyone's being nice and a lot of it happens at, in daytime. Part of it is like you have these like old Hollywood stars, right? Like Bruce Gordon, Sidney Blackmer, Ralph Bellamy, of course. Pat, you know, um, you have all these like old people who are being so evil, but they're so like grandmotherly about it, you know, like. Ruth Gordon, like, like mini cast of it, like, she could just be your annoying old lady neighbor, you know, <laughs> even if she weren't a Satanist, she'd be so annoying. And you'd be like, you'd be, I mean, like, it's so funny how like, they're, 
in, you know, initially they're like talking about avoiding them and like not want like talking behind their back and stuff. And it's like what you do with these like elderly neighbors who have no lives. <laughs> um, and There's you listen a... to their dumb stories and pretend they're interesting, you know. Um, I love that so much. <laughs> oh, it's so ridiculous. Patsy Kelly <laughs> as Laura Louise. I find the name Laura Louise so funny. <laughs> I don't know why, but it makes me laugh. Because, like, why does she, why is her name Laura Louise? <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> um, but also, like, I think it's funny, like, you know, she kind of looks like a nun. Um and like she looks just straight out of the sound of music and mm-hmm. like but also like there's like it, it's it's so interesting because like you can see this cult is very like patriarchal in its own way because like they're looking for like a young fertile woman and you have all these like old ladies who probably like feel like you know cast aside like there's like laura louise's hostility towards rosemary i feel like it's partially because she's like oh i'm too like they think I'm too old to do anything. I'm useless to them. And now this like cute young blonde is like going to be hailed as like the leader of their little cult out of nowhere. Um, and, so, and the same with like, you know, Minnie Castavets, like she has to be disinvolved in Rosemary's life because like, she's probably feeling like, what else, what other role do I have in this? cult in this group you know and like they're getting dismissed left and right by all these men at the end there's a there's a moment early on where you realize they can or they realize they can hear the um the neighbors next door rosemary and guy and they're like oh geez you know like what a discount or whatever and then later after uh uh terry angela dorian's character commits suicide right it's terry right yeah i got the name okay and she um and that night you hear them bickering a a literal old married couple bickering which is like you know that's like a standard trope that's a also real life uh (laughs) doesn't mean they don't love each other but you know old people bicker but they're bickering about essentially the apocalypse yeah and it's you know it's horrifying but it's also very funny it's like oh great now we gotta start all over again <laughs> like what yeah <laughs> and that, that's a comedy beat <laughs> right <laughs> right exactly and um it, it's so funny and it, it's also like it's one of those things where you don't quite really understand what they're saying until the end of the movie or until you watch mm-hmm. it again you know it has that like same quality as like our one of our previous episodes got out which is like the second, third, fourth time you watch the movie, it's totally different. And everything makes more sense. And, like, you know, um, you can imagine that, like, Roman Castavet, like, just didn't listen to what his wife was saying and just kind of did whatever he wanted. And, you know, and that's why she, it's like, there's this, like, I think this off-screen power struggle between them. And, like, how much they put on that they're, like, this, like, cute, quirky, old married couple. I think there's a lot of tension there. And um, and I feel like she's projecting a lot of, like, control over Rosemary because, like, this is her one project, you know. And, mm-hmm. and she wants to do this one right because, like, her husband messed up the first one or the previous one. Yeah. And, like, I I really like those characters. Yeah. a lot like they're they're awful obviously but um there's like oh we we're mentioning how funny the movie is and i just want to also strive home again like how 
how like cleanly they toe the line between ridiculous old person and the face of evil. Right, right. <laughs> Which yeah. is a, a very fine line to ride. Um, and I and, think that's that's why, you know, you have these, like, old Hollywood, you know, stars. Because they're, like, people that you kind of recognize. But also, like, it's not like they got Cary Grant or, you know, like, Ingrid Bergman or something. You know, like, no, they got that would have like, been something. I mean, <laughs> that would have been amazing. But it's, like, these people who feel familiar, but you don't quite know who they are. You know, so like, mm-hmm. um, that's why it's like it's so unsettling and so scary because it's like these people feel like someone that you know, but also like they're being really nice but hostile but kind but like intrusive, and it's really just it's really something. Uh, again, like this movie is like the casting of this movie is like top to bottom so great. I mean, even Angela Dorian, like. You know, like you feel sad when she died, even though she had like one scene, but like just in the the laundromat, yeah. But it's like she immediately gives such a like engaging, you know, character. Oh, I I have to point this out too because, like, for a lot of these sort of supernatural mystery movies, like uh, someone dies and then like the the villains or whatever, like, will make up a lie about them. Um, I I don't know if you've seen like Midnight Mass or anything like that, but there's a moment Mm -hmm. where like the protagonist catches um, like a misnomer. Like they're like, Oh, this person didn't have anyone in their life. And the episode prior, the person was like, well, I was just talking to that person. They told me they had so-and-so on the mainland or whatever. And it's like, Oh, that's how they get you. And then here, and this is, uh, it's just, Oh my God, it's going to be 60 years old. Right. This decade is going to be 60 yeah. year old movie. Yeah. That's, oh my God. That's amazing. Um, but they they play that off and they like undercut it where it's like oh no she uh oh, rosemary goes no 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 she had a brother in the navy and they don't try to be like oh you're crazy rosemary they're like oh did she okay and they they go along with it to like lure her in even further and it's like mm-hmm. that's where it's like really scary yeah you know, it's it's they're not they're gaslighting her while pretending to support her it's it's you know, guy is just straight up like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, that's a very general uh, example of what he does, but that's essentially what he does. Where the old people are like, no, no, honey, we're we're gonna like, okay, you, we're listening, we're listening, we'll support you, and it's 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 just that's all a lie, obviously, and that's what really makes my skin crawl. Yeah, it's that false sense of security. Um, it's really just. Uh... Uh, I don't know. It's this movie is just is so scary. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I don't. The Satanist part is not even the scary part. You know, I mean, like they all mm-hmm. seem like such buffoons at the end. You know, you have the guy with the camera. You have like Laura Louise like shaking that poor baby's crib. I'm like, lady, come on. <laughs> even I know <laughs> not to do that to a child. Oh, it's her uh, last little look, and then oh, yeah, it's hung great. out. It's ridiculous. <laughs> It's so great. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the sad part is that, like, all this, like, it, all this would happen even if they weren't in a Satanist cult, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about the movie Mother, directed by Darren Aronofsky, mm-hmm. Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Bardem, just because, like, that we had a poster that was very evocative of Real Baby, and I think I thought that 
that's it was going to be like a softish remake, and it wasn't. But I do think the the two movies have a lot in common, um, in that like it puts you in that space of being like in in the perspective of some of a woman who's being like just like dismissed and gaslit and manipulated and oppressed for two hours and fifteen minutes or whatever. And I was wondering if you liked the movie, if you'd seen it, if you hate the movie. But I just like, I mean, I, I haven't, I watched it last, I guess I watched it maybe a few, um, when did I watch it? I guess I watched it like last summer um, I, again. And I, but I just like, I, I thought about this. I, I did not choose Mother for this miniseries, but I kind of wish I had. But also like this, it's kind of overkill to do two episodes and those two, two movies I feel like are saying a lot of the same things. But anyway, I was just wondering what you thought about Mother, if you want to like chat about it for a few minutes. Yeah, um, I <laughs> I am going to choose my words carefully here because I, I'm trying to be less of a crap talker. But <laughs> I saw that opening weekend with my good friend and co-host to my podcast, Lawful Press Gene. Um, about 15 minutes before the end, something happens. And I, I was not feeling the movie the entire time. By that point, something happened and I patted him on the arm and I was like, I'll see you in the front. Like, I, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, not a fan. Uh, Darren Aronofsky is a little hit and miss for me when he hits the home run. When he misses the, the ball hits a baby in the face in the stands. And it's embarrassing. And in my opinion, some people love everything he does. I, I'm not like a a hater. I just, when he misses for me, it's like a big miss. And that was a big miss. I totally see where you're coming from with the similarities for it too, though. You know, like I think when that movie works, cause it does work at times. Um, it is, you know, it, it's with Jennifer Lawrence uh, being shut out of her own home, basically, even while she's in her own home, like the characters don't uh, allow her to have a voice essentially in any of the, the, the narrative happenings in that film, um, which, you know, I, I think it's, I, I think there's, there's probably like a, a good version of that movie, which is also, you know, inherently a tragedy. There, yeah. It's, if you didn't, if you saw that movie and didn't catch that it was about the Bible, you know, like, you know, maybe uh, give it a rewatch, but there's, <laughs> There's there's some biblical elements in that film um, for anyone that somehow missed it. (laughs) And I'm not, I tend not to be someone who's like gets upset or, or disgruntled about a lack of subtlety. I think the world we live in is no longer any, like any, any more subtle than that movie. Um, But I also wasn't very engaged with it on the whole. So that that's my, that's my big breaking point for it. Um, I will say it's beautifully shot. Um, and I think uh, Rosemary's Baby is also beautifully shot uh, by, uh, you know, I should mention that the, the, film, the cinematographer, William A. Fraker, who uh, is no longer with us, but fantastic cinematographer who shot stuff like Bullet, um, which you should all watch because it's excellent. The Exorcist 2, which is not excellent, but is a gorgeous movie. So... There you go. A, a positive for uh, to to connect both of them for me. Yeah, um, yeah. William Fraker had a crazy career. Like he did like war games and baby <laughs> boom, 
Um, it, I I love you know this is kind of a tangent, but like I love looking at like famous cinematographers' careers because like a lot of them really have crazy careers. <laughs> like yeah, they do they a do. lot, you know, and like yeah, yeah, you got your guys like you know, uh, what, what's his face, the Tarantino guy, Robert Robert Richardson. <laughs> yes, I know exactly like, where you're going with this. And like he does like the same like four directors, and he's great. I love him. But then you have someone like. Um, you know, Matthew Libatik, who like, well, does Mother, I think, but also like, yeah, yeah, he does Iron Man 3 and The Star is Born and Venom. And you're like, great. He he did, I believe, the first two oh, first, Iron Men. First two yeah. Iron Men. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. No, no, it's, I mean, hey, um, um, Matty Libatik is one of my favorite working cinematographers. Like, I, I am pro Libatik. Whenever he wants to team up with Darren, Aros- uh, Darren Aronofsky, I'll be there. Doesn't mean I like yeah. the movie, but you know that's how yeah. much I enjoy their collaborations. And I mean, I'm I'm not a huge Aronofsky guy either. Like I think the only one that I would really go bad for is Black Swan. Yeah, um, but like I mean, The Wrestler I like also. I think The Wrestler is like very soft, you know. But like I'm mm-hmm. not like Noah and Watson. Love her, so I'm into that. But like. You know, it's. I'm not gonna be like I love the guy. Um, you just but, mentioned my three favorites. So right, you know. Yeah, the three good ones. You know, um, <laughs> yeah, a little. And um, I, I, I guess like for me, Jennifer Lawrence's performance in Mother is the the main selling point because I, I think that's that's a, like one of her top performances. And I oh, do I, agree I the movie doesn't agree. work as a whole. Um, but I, I yeah. So, um, but yeah. Anyway. Dr. Rosemary's Baby. I just, I just wanted to bring it up because, like, that poster is—it's a really evocative poster that I really, oh I really yeah, like. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was completely intentional, and I think that yeah. was a smart move, frankly. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and even for the first half of the movie, I'm like, okay, it's going to turn. I was like, oh, Michelle or Michelle Pfeiffer is like the mini cast of it. Like, that's great. It's great casting. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I, I do agree with you that I think Rosemary's Baby looks incredible, and I, I think it's the like handheld camera moments are really just so like jarring and and again puts you in that perspective um and i i really like the uh audio the audio design as well um and um the the production design i think is really creepy especially like you know the the cast of its apartment just has that like look of like um yeah if you ever watched like a vampire show like true blood or like you know um i guess like true blood is like what i'm thinking of is like when you look at like houses of like the vampires who like kind of lead into being a vampire and they have like all these like weird beautiful artifacts and like mm-hmm. you know i think the cast of its home looks like that it has that like old castle <laughs> feel to it where there's just yeah. like all these like creepy artifacts and pictures and you're just like wow obviously you collected these over centuries like no human being could collect this stuff in like 80 years yeah um yeah. but um yeah so um yeah i just think that i mean i think really the 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 like one thing i really wanted to, to touch upon is the score um which i think is really you know you have the um you have the main lullaby theme but just like the music is just so like um, unique and really fits into the the mood. It's um a Polish composer named uh, Krzysztof Komeda, also a big collaborator with Roman Polanski. He also did Cul de Sac and Knife of the Water, um, and uh, yeah, just really an incredible piece of work. 
yeah, that uh, I, w- I was talking at the top about move like how movies don't really scare me the same way this one did. Like this is the last one that got under my skin prior to me understanding like the the production of movies. I guess that score is still so creepy. Like, okay, I'll, here's here's a, a truth bomb in the background silently. I have had Steven Universe on in the background because as I finished watching that movie before recording with you, it still unsettles me. Like that yeah. music is so it ah ah it like you know it's it's it, like you said it's a, it's a lullaby. It's called Lullaby from Rosemary's Baby, and it does the opposite of lull you to sleep. Yeah, it makes you scared to be awake. Um, it is. It is disturbing on a fundamental biological level. Uh, so when Get Out opens with uh, a chant that's rhythmically similar, I was like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. In a good way. In a good way. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, I also love the opening credits and how they're like this like hot pink color. Yeah. Um, like because like pastel type thing. Pastel pink. Yeah, it's. I feel like this movie is like I think that that color and that font really sets you up for this movie being very like feminine. And like, you know, I'm not a woman, obviously, so like take what I say with a grain of salt, but like I feel like this movie is quite feminine and like how it's like very firmly planted in like the woman's experience and very much in her gaze. And you know, it's um I mean, as we both have mentioned, it's like really like kind of opened our eyes in in a sense and um, really kind of provided this like, you know, perspective that we, you know, didn't have when we were younger and, have, and it's been like strengthening, you know, our, our kind of view of the world, right? Um, and it kind of reminded me of um, Crimson Peak, Grand Torres movie. Yeah, um, because like that movie is also very like firmly planted in perspective, and everything feels so lush and soft and beautiful, only to kind of have this like horror underneath and have a protagonist. I mean, again, a gothic protagonist who's running around a big castle, you know. Um, so um, yeah, I feel like you like that movie. Yeah, I I, I love um, Crimson Peak. <laughs> Uh, wait, didn't we like have an unaired podcast about it years ago? Did we? I Did, feel I... like we. It was with Marcelo. Oh, may, maybe. And like I, I, at the very least, I think we were we were planning to do something at or, the yeah, very yeah. least. But um, yeah, yeah, um, life, yeah. And stuff. That's one of those like horror movies that I think like just feels so you know, in tune with its tone and its perspective, uh, just like Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, I, and, you know, I think it's also worth pointing out that these are, like, very subjective point of views, um, or at least these films are, are present very subjective point of views uh, for their protagonists. Yeah. And, like, sometimes, like, other films are maybe more objective, like, ensemble films tend to be, like, getting every perspective, and it's a little harder to get, in my, in my opinion, anyways, it's a little harder to get, like, stylistic in in that manner you know because yeah. you have to cover so many points of view and that's so dialogue heavy that's so that's so embedded in like the blocking of your film and i think having like a, a solitary protagonist um if you look at like the history of cinema those tend to be the more like visually expressive or 
stylistic. And I think Rosemary's Baby is very stylistically expressive, but it's it's not like uh, it's not what you'd consider stylistically expressive because it has more like natural colors in its palette versus yeah, like right. you know like Suspiria, which I love, you know, but not very naturalistic. Um, it's maybe the opposite of naturalistic, which I love. Or again, Crimson Peak, not very naturalistic colors, but um, yeah, I mean, I think wonderful. with Rosemary's Baby, the expressiveness comes from just like the camera work and the editing, yeah, and sort of like its angles and its point of view more so than but i think this movie looks incredible like 50 plus years later like i watched it on youtube you know like i i watched it in my digital library on youtube which i felt bad about doing that but i yeah hey um, look look i i, I didn't have no my blur with me yeah it happens um i didn't have my blur with me and i had it in my digital library but looking even on youtube it looked great um and it felt so it felt like new again and again like i think this movie you know if someone can you know get past sort of the ickiness with polanski i think this movie really speaks to modern times in a way that is really depressing but quite interesting yeah i i would go as far as calling it uh a vital horror film honestly Um, and then again that's this comes with that addendum that right. um that it, that it just has to happen. Um, I, I know some people like to maybe write it off for the sake of art, and some people like to disengage because of the person who made the art. There's no wrong response, in my opinion, to that. You know, maybe don't shove it down, you know, like towards people if they don't want to engage with it. I think that's fine. You don't know the lives people have lived, but. In my opinion, like if I was teaching a film class, um, I would be a terrible professor. But if I was teaching one, I would put it on the recommended viewing list. And because uh, I, I think it's it's an important one to study, at the very least, for its filmmaking qualities. And maybe it's a I'll do a section on separating the art from the artist. There you go. <laughs> if I was your horrible film professor and then I'd get kicked out after a semester for right. being a bad teacher. But <laughs> for that one semester, I'm getting right, this one right. in there. Um, yeah, this movie I think would be, I think, very vital and I think would be very instructive. And I think even just to, you know, talk about these kind of heady confusing topics there's really no right answer um everything is valid everyone's reaction to things is valid unless you're like hey he did nothing wrong oh yeah that, then, that's then, not valid then, you know don't talk to me <laughs> don't like, talk to me right that. exactly yeah. <laughs> um, you know um, what oh maybe that's that's also a way to tie it back to the ending of rosemary's baby where it's like it it's a complicated film that leaves you with complicated emotions yeah um made by an uncomplicated person because we know where they fall on things but you know you're you're left to deal with these emotions yourself and i think art maybe doesn't provide us answers to this stuff but it can raise questions i just stole that from ethan hawk but i'm gonna say it anyways because i think that's a pretty good point you know like if you expect cinema or any art form to provide you with answers on how to live your life better i think that might be a little silly but you can ask the right questions on how to have a more fulfilling life or address things that um are not normally addressed you know because even when i was in high school like these conversations about women's rights and stuff like that were 
pretty I, I, full disclosure i went to an all-male catholic school so that's probably why it was also very limited in those discussions but um you know like sexual health and stuff like that we're still pretty limited and uh it's it, it's important to engage with these things however you can and if cinema is a doorway to that for you then um i think this is a pretty good starting point at least i absolutely agree and i think that's a great place to end um diego thank you so much for being here please let the listeners know where they can find you and what you're working on anything you'd like to share uh yeah thank you for having me first of all please uh stop on by my podcast let's set something up soon because i i i I had you on before for dev dos which is a great movie and it took too long to get that episode out Uh, i promise it will not take that long again so (laughs) let's please figure something out um you could find me at uh the waffle press um uh, it's my podcast that i that i do i do uh bi-weekly episodes of either film retrospectives on uh franchise well not really franchises anymore but like filmmakers um genres of film there's a there's a a a mini series i've got going on called failed award contenders and failed blockbusters um right now we're on failed award contenders and they might be failed award contenders but they're not failures as movies in our hearts generally speaking there maybe there's some stinkers we cover once in a while but you know i want to highlight stuff that maybe doesn't get a lot of uh coverage otherwise um i'm also a photographer a uh screenwriter let's let's see if i can get some representation this year that's kind of the goal um that would be a lot of fun to have but uh photography is kind of like my main source of like life right now so i'm doing a lot of that i post stuff on twitter and instagram uh at the diego crespo on twitter and diego crespo grams on instagram so um this was this was really a blast and uh i know we talked about a complicated movie with complicated emotions but my uncomplicated feelings on you Manish are that you are one of the best Twitter follows and um, someone I greatly respect and admire so thank you again for having me on oh my gosh thank you and uh, right back at you um, great Twitter follow great person great podcast great guy um, definitely I felt you know I was a little like oh you know I, I don't know how a Rosemary Baby discussion will go but I knew I could trust you to be respectful and interesting and engaging which of course you are so thank you um and um listeners thank you for listening to this episode you can find me on twitter at vertigate 314 uh also please follow the podcast at a pod to be you and remember to rate review and subscribe uh next our next episode is going to be uh, the four-year anniversary of the podcast is insane. Um, we're talking Ooh. about a very, a very uh, special, very acclaimed film, Mulholland Drive, directed by the great David Lynch. Um, so that will be really exciting. Um, so look out for that. And Diego, thank you, listeners. Thanks again. Bye. Bye bye.